0: Welcome to Soil to Soil, a podcast connecting the dots in the life cycle of clothing and material culture, brought to you by Fibershed. Each episode offers a look at how and why our community is working to cultivate fiber and dye systems that build soil and protect the health of our biosphere. Today's conversation dives into the flows of the carbon cycle, from atmosphere to earth. I'm Jess Daniels, and I'm really excited to share a conversation between Rebecca Burgess, who is the Founder and Executive Director of Fibershed, and Dr. Keith Postgen, Professor of Soil Ecology at Colorado State University. Dr. Keith Postgen is a researcher focusing on greenhouse gas emissions that are related to agriculture, from crops to grasslands. He studies and assesses the carbon dynamics between soil and atmosphere and the potential of landscape-focused management to draw atmospheric carbon down to earth and into the soil. Because what we eat and what we wear comes from the earth, modeling these systems provides the opportunity to engage with the carbon dynamics between the soil and the atmosphere. And so Dr. Paustian's research looks at this potential of landscape management to draw excess carbon from the atmosphere down to the earth and into the soil. As you likely know, human-caused greenhouse gas emissions are responsible for an excess of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And the feedback loops from this carbon imbalance are changing our climate at unprecedented scale. Globally, the world's soils have lost 133 gigatons of carbon. And it's a huge number that also presents an opportunity for communities to restore soil carbon through landscape management. Dr. Poston is one of the creators of the Comet Farm Tool, a whole farm and ranch greenhouse gas accounting system that uses scientific data to model the potential for farmers and ranchers in the United States to maximize carbon drawdown. This is a tool that we've used in our community, and it's really exciting because there are so many co-benefits. We heard in the last episode from Jim Jensen, a rancher and member of the Northern California Fiber Shed, who is using landscape management choices to build soil carbon. And so we call this carbon farming, but how do we actually know the numbers associated with these practices? Well, Comet Farm is the free open source tool that provides Jim and many other farmers and ranchers with the carbon calculations that pair their practices with peer reviewed data modeling. Here's Rebecca and Dr. Poshin to share more about how this modeling works and the climate resilience opportunities it creates.
1: So for some time here at our organization, uh, we've been unearthing uh, and trying to understand the ways in which human beings can generate the necessities for their existence. And in the case of our work, it's their first form of shelter, their clothing. And how can we produce these necessities while simultaneously working to enhance the ecological function of the landscapes that we depend upon and that, in our case, are intimate with? This interview is intended to dive into the root of all the fiber, food, flora, fuel sheds through a discussion of the system that really keeps us all alive, which is the soil. And the health of that soil defines really the health of us and the health of our planet. So to jump into um, to Keith's work, um, I'm hoping you could introduce the work that you find to be most relevant to this conversation, knowing that you're involved in, in many research projects. Um, and if there's anything you wanna add to the introduction, um, please feel free. So I'll
2: pass that to you Keith. Thanks, Rebecca. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I, I do a lot of work looking at at land use systems and their impacts on greenhouse gas emissions and also how we can modify our land use practices to reduce greenhouse gases to sequester atmospheric carbon dioxide into into soils and and biomass. Uh, and along with that is is also. In, in, in general uh, improving soil quality and soil health a lot of the work that we've been doing with you and also with others with 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 and, and with others is to provide tools and technologies so that that you can um, assess the the impacts of your of your production systems on on greenhouse gas emissions and essentially what the carbon footprint of, of your products are So we've developed some technologies, one of which is called Comet Farm, which is a a decision support platform that uses uh, a lot of data and and software interfaces and models combined into a a package that's really designed to to give uh, non-experts a tool to do really state-of-the-art greenhouse gas assessments for, for land use systems. At the farm scale and this is is really been a a, uh, a product of of many years collaboration with USDA NRCS and, and other parts of USDA. Uh, we've also worked with with a number of NGOs and, uh, and also various ag industries that are you know supportive of this work so that's that's really the kind of the main work that, that we're doing that relates to Fibershed's objectives in, in this, you know, in general, it's kind of in the area of, can we measure effectively, you know, the ecosystem performance of, of our
1: products? Thank you. And we're so grateful for the modeling work that you helped us with in our, what we call these carbon farm plans that we work on with the Carbon Cycle Institute and resource conservation districts. And those carbon farm plans are basically looking at all the carbon capture opportunities on a farmer ranch within the or ranch gates and analyzing how much we can do to restore these soils and the function of the farmer ranch system from an ecological perspective. And then your modeling system has been extremely key to understanding the impact if we were to implement all of the practices that we've outlined. So we stay very aspirational about what we can do on that land and we, we list it all, and then we get the buy-in from the rancher or farmer to help us you know, implement these um, ecologically focused and productivity-focused practices. A lot of these practices are enhancing productivity on the landscape as well for the farmer or rancher. And so We start there with these kind of micro projects that are informed by your modeling. So then we can say, well, this farmer ranch is going to be able to sequester 4,068 metric tons of CO2e per year. And it's been so helpful to understand how to relate agriculture in this conversation around climate change amelioration. And so just to get to that point um, of how And I'd love to explore this with you. There is a quote from um, Ohio State University soil scientist, Ratan Lal, and he says, combining soil carbon sequestration with sequestration in vegetation in the terrestrial biosphere will draw down approximately 333 gigatons of carbon. And this equals 150 parts per million of drawdown. And then he says, you know, it's up to us. Are you in? (laughs) And then there's other papers that have talked about how we can lower Earth's temperature by deploying very commonly accepted agricultural practices. And that paper was in Nature and it was published through Nature, but it was the research was done by Dr. Wendy Silver. So, Keith, from your perspective, can you describe a, you know, your relationship to those quotes I just offered, and then also then lead into your your understanding of the role of agriculture. In
2: this climate conversation, sure. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Rebecca. There, there's definitely a lot of interest now uh, in in how terrestrial systems can can help in a much more substantial way than has maybe previously been realized for uh, for climate change mitigation and uh, the. I guess the 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 really broad context is that most of the assessments by, for example, the Intergovernmental Panel on climate change and and other experts in the field, if we look at the you know the targets for the the Paris agreements, for example, uh, which are intended to put the world on a pathway to avoid the 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 most damaging outcomes from climate change in other words to keep greenhouse warming below 2 degrees C global mean temperature increase uh, by the end of the century. to achieve that we really need to, to do drastic reductions in our current emissions of carbon dioxide from fossil fuel use but in addition it's kind of like we've waited too long unfortunately you know we should have been cutting emissions more dramatically. Uh, you know, years ago. but now we're in a situation where even if we do the, the, the most feasible, rapid reduction in, in emissions, uh, that's probably not going to be enough to stay on that less than two degree pathway. So it, we need to, to have ways of actively removing carbon dioxide that's already in the atmosphere. And I worked on a, there's a National Academy of Sciences report that just came out in October that talks about the suite of technologies that could contribute to this carbon dioxide drawdown. Uh, and there's a, there's a range of, of different approaches, but interestingly, the the ones, the technologies that are likely to be able to be implemented in, you know, now or in the next few years and the ones which also can be done relatively inexpensively are in fact the, the kind of terrestrial technologies that you referred to that Professor Lau and, and Wendy Silver's work looks at is you know carbon sequestration in our managed ecosystems. In terms of and, and there are, you know, the, the Academy reports and, and others certainly show that there's a, a pretty substantial potential there. We know, for example, that you know we've all we've historically lost a lot of carbon from our soils and from our native vegetation in terms of deforestation and and conversion of of native ecosystems into into agriculture and and other land uses. And so to some extent, if we can practice better land management, uh, more effectively take up more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere via the plants and, and hold more of that organic matter in soil, as soil organic matter in particular, but also in in, in long-lived woody biomass. Then, that can certainly contribute, you know, in, in a big way towards that mitigation target. So, for example, in the academy's report, it's estimated that we'll we'll have to uh, the world will have to be able to take up something on the order of about 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalents per year by mid-century. And a big part of that can potentially be done by land management practices that increase soil carbon sequestration and uh, these other terrestrial solutions. So there's certainly potential there. There's there are also constraints and, and barriers to be overcome, but I think it's it's a an area that offers a lot of promise towards helping solve the, uh, the the climate change dilemma. And at the same time, if we can increase the organic matter content of our of our working soils, there's huge benefits in terms of you know soil health and and, and productivity and just the, the performance of the soils. Uh, in general,
1: so thank you for outlining the potential. And I definitely looked at the the recent IPCC report, and there is a pretty significant gap between what the countries, you know, well, in general, with the agreement. Um, I guess so coming out of maybe it was COP twenty one, there was agreements made on emissions reduction. But then, yes, the pathway to keeping the planet under two degrees. Celsius temperature increase, there's just this gap. So terrestrial systems Ostensibly could help us get there and then I just wanted to put out there um, in your opinion of the IPCC report Because I know you're in, you're involved with the IPCC. You're a member scientist. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, I have been I worked for many years on the uh, on the greenhouse gas inventory task force uh, which develops Methods for country level reporting of, of greenhouse gas emissions and, and removals.
1: So, do you feel that, you know, I've heard some, you know, a lot of people the recent IPCC report saying, okay, we have, you know, 12 years to turn this around and all, all the mechanisms for doing that need to be deployed, you know, yesterday. <laughs> um, but There's also a a sector of scientists who are, you know, from people who are working in the Arctic, there's an Arctic news group of scientists, you know, you've probably heard some of the evolutionary biologists like Guy McPherson, people who are saying, you know, this is actually happening much faster. And the IPCC keeps kind of realizing that things are happening much faster than anticipated. So that's the kind of the, dialectic i'm hearing as kind of a lay person that there's a group of scientists who are saying we have to move much faster and look you're going to keep seeing the ipcc telling you it's happening faster than than they thought when you think about the questions that the ipcc asks itself to frame this conversation what is your opinion of of how they're assessing the, the multiple variables that go into for instance, the West Antarctic ice sheet melting or Greenland melting, are we are we really asking ourselves all the right scientific questions to do this analysis? Or in some cases, I've heard a critique that we're being asked, those scientists are being asked political questions. Do you have any comments on that?
2: <laughs> yeah, or comments, opinions. So first I would say, I, I think the, I think the IPCC has been a very effective organization, and it's really—it's really, in essence, it's a group of scientists from all around the world that volunteer their time to do these assessments and to to work on methodologies for for greenhouse gas inventories. And I think it's really a an organization that's been extremely effective and. I think we, you know, I, I sort of shudder to think if the if that organization hadn't been formed and hadn't been able to continue its work over these many years, where we would be if if we we're just left up to sort of individual governments, there was no kind of global scientific organization that was able to to be a kind of an honest broker on on this debate. so so I think we're we're very fortunate that the ipCC, exists and, and continues, uh, I would say that, you know, first of all, of course, there's, you know, I don't think there's really scientific uncertainty of, of, any, of any importance with respect to the, the phenomena, if you will, of, of human induced climate change, greenhouse gas emissions and, and the consequences for the, you know, the energy balance of the planet. But there is, there's certainly uncertainties about things like major feedbacks. If the temperatures increase in the, in the Arctic and the boreal regions uh, lead to a, a feedback of emissions of, of carbon dioxide and methane from biotic sources there, for example, that would greatly accelerate the problem. Uh, so there's uncertainties we don't know, and, but I think there's a, a broad consensus that, yes, we don't really have any time to waste, that we need to uh, move as expeditiously as, as possible, and uh, the world's governments and societies need to take this problem you know, very seriously. I, I don't think there's, well, 12 years, if we haven't achieved this in 12 years, then all hope is lost. You know, we don't know with that sort of precision. I don't think there's necessarily any you know, particular deadline that we know for sure. But the point is, and, and, and we don't know entirely you know, how the systems are, are going to respond to some of these feedbacks. So the, I think there's broad agreement that it's an urgent problem we need to work as quickly as possible. And, and yes, I think that, you know, it can be useful to say, hey, we've got a decade to really solidly get on a, on an emission reduction and a carbon drawdown pathway. And, you know, I think, you know, we need to do that this decade, but that means starting starting now or continuing the, the work that's and accelerating what certainly what, what's been done to date.
0: I really ap- appreciate
1: hearing um, your comment that you shudder to think what would happen if we didn't have a global community of scientists uh, with a scorecard and a, and I don't know if that's a good term, but just, you know, measuring and, and modeling outside of individual governments. And I too, am um, very grateful for the role of people volunteering their time to come together to analyze this. It's We owe the IPCC scientists a lot of gratitude. So thank you for entertaining my question, which I'd have to say is stemmed basically from a concern of seeing what I see are positive feedback loops with negative consequences. So I'm already, and many of us, I think most, if not all, who are paying attention are seeing this play out in their home communities through fire, flood, the loss of terrestrial life. And so it just seems very, it, it comes across to me, someone who's born and raised and been in the same watershed for multiple generations, that through stories between my great grandmother and now, I, I hear and experience dramatic shifts in life uh, as it's expressed in this community I live in. So I, I do have faith, or I don't know if that's the right word, I do see how we could turn these positive feedback loops towards giving us positive outcomes instead of negative outcomes. (laughs) And so the next question for for you is um, about the environmental uh, systems or the environmental process model that you've developed called Comet. I have seen practices that have been modeled through the Comet system, the Comet model, I guess we'll call it. I've seen practices on farm that we've been able to help farmers implement. For instance, I just found out two days ago that the compost application on croplands that we've been doing at one of the sheep ranches that we work with, it doubled their crop yield within three years. And they were able, they they aren't using nitrogen fertilizers, they're using compost that's made on the ranch, applying it to cropland and having this amazing productivity increase and we're going to do some more tests on the soil carbon content Um, but we anticipate um, in the next year that 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 will show gains our goal is a six percent soil organic matter uh, percentage in the next year on those croplands from you know less than one (laughs) percent so we're really hoping to move the dial and comment has been again this tool, this open source tool that I'm very grateful that you've created that helps us understand these estimates about what the GHG greenhouse gas implications are for composting in a system, um, putting compost down on a cropland or a rangeland. So as we work on farms and ranches and because of our use of the Comet tool, we're able to estimate the greenhouse gas drawdown for practice implementation. We've come to appreciate greatly and trust in the um, the modeling that Comet has provided us uh, where we're able to plug in a practice and then the model, which is open source, free, very easy to use Comet Planner, for instance, is one of the ways we make some estimates around what the greenhouse gas drawdown will be related to implementing a practice, a carbon firm practice. And so for the listeners, I'm interested in, Keith, if you could describe what the back end of this is, how to describe Comet for the audience, and using that frame of an environmental process model versus an empirical model.
2: So I guess I'd start off, and I'd say that Comet Farm is, is kind of more of a, think of it as a platform. So it, it does include models that are used to estimate both greenhouse gas emissions, as well as carbon dynamics, and including changes in, in solar organic carbon as well as vegetation carbon stocks, but it's more than just the the models. It's a a platform that has a user interface so that the farmer or rancher can enter their their management activity data, how they manage their farm. Uh, It's got uh, spatial databases that give information on the on the soil physical properties at their location, what their weather climate is, so that those are those help drive the biological processes that are behind the carbon dynamics in the system. So it's really this this package of different elements that is all designed so that a non-expert can really have the kind of a state-of-the-art toolkit, if you will. And and I would emphasize that the best way to see changes in soil carbon that are occurring because of, of improved land management practices or, you know, changes in, in emissions of other greenhouse gases such as nitrous oxide. You know, if you could measure those at, at all your locations, that would be, you know, the best information you could have in, in principle. But of course, if you've, you know, it's, it's not easy to measure something like nitrous oxide flux from soils unless you have the right kind of equipment and training to do that it's something that's really a research kind of a function and and also you know measuring soil carbon change is best done over multiple years and using you know careful procedures to to accurately measure the carbon stock And, and these kind of measurements are are done at uh, long-term field experiments and in research labs and, and by USDA and and in various you know parts of the country and similar things are are also done in you know elsewhere in the world and basically the you know I guess the philosophy is with the the Comet Farm system is we have utilized essentially all the best sets of measurements and and field experiments from across the country and and the data available to parameterize and validate the models that are within Comet Farm so that the user is is kind of benefiting from a a really large data set of, of field measurements, but also Uh, And you mentioned the process-based model, so there's a a model called the DayCent model, which is internal to Comet Farm, and it is a process-based model. So it it is modeling the the carbon dynamics of the ecosystem, including the uptake of carbon dioxide by the plants and how that carbon enters the soil through plant residues and, and roots and this sort of thing. And then how that organic matter is then is processed in the soil, leading to, to some of that carbon being released as carbon dioxide through the decomposition process, but then some of the carbon being being stabilized and stored over a longer period of time in the soil as soil organic matter. So the I think the virtue of that kind of a, of a process-based model that really takes into account the what's actually happening in the ecosystem you know the processes like photosynthesis like, like plant growth like root growth like decomposition and organic matter stabilization those are represented you know to the best of our understanding of the biology and ecology of those systems and therefore those kind of models can make better use of both the experimental field measurements that have been done and, and can more effectively sort of extrapolate those results to very different areas of the country where we don't necessarily have, you know, all those measurements, but we've got, you know, we know what the land use activity is. We know what the climate and the soil properties are. So that all goes together in, into the model to, you know, to, to make an effective prediction of how the carbon storage and how the greenhouse gas emissions are affected by the management practices on a particular farm or particular ranch.
1: Thank you for describing that. And we are very grateful for the math and the scientific backing um, that you've embedded into the model. And just to reiterate, so the environmental process-based model that takes into account all of the parameters and or i would say variables that you just described those then are not necessarily put into what you would call an empirical model and are there other models out there that that have like fewer parameters for measuring these things and just could you just say a couple words about what an empirical model is and how it's different sure
2: i guess an empirical model really is sometimes referred to as kind of a, more of a black box model in other words you you could have a set of measurements so maybe you've measured so carbon change as a function of you know of some set of management or environmental variables and so you could have a simple simple model that might you know give a, a rate of carbon change with a particular practice in a particular, set of of soil or environmental conditions it doesn't you know the model itself doesn't really contain the you know the information about about how that change happens so it's again it's kind of like well if, if there's this set of conditions then here's the result and so think of it as a like a, a regression equation is a uh, you know with an empirical model where you just have you know a set of independent variables that then go into the model and you get a a value out as as the the dependent variable as the result if you will and so empirical models can be you know can be perfectly fine and 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 are you know can also be used well for predictive purposes the problem I guess the biggest limitation in this context, I think, with empirical models is, is empirical models really are are very much restricted to the conditions under which you've estimated the model or you've created the model. So again, think of it as, you know, I'll call it a, a black box model. You don't, you don't really understand or you're not trying to understand the processes that give the outcome. You just, the model is based on a set of conditions that give an outcome. So as long as you're within the frame of those different conditions, whether it's a certain soil types or certain climatic variables or a certain region of the country, then you can have probably pretty good confidence in the results of an empirical model. But in many places we we lack, you know, we lack that experimental information. And so an empirical model is, you know, we we basically, uh, empirical models can't be used just to extrapolate across different conditions as well as a process-based model. So I think they, and we've done lots of comparisons of empirical models versus process-based models in some of our our greenhouse gas inventory work, including, for example, at the United States, uh, national greenhouse gas inventory. And I think it's pretty well, seen not only by us but by other folks working in the field and indeed it's it's a kind of a I guess a theoretically expected outcome that that process based models all else being equal reduce the uncertainty of the estimates and they are they're more applicable to extrapolate to areas with with sparser data than empirical models are. So I think that the kind of models that we're talking about in in Comet Farm just have have shown themselves to be more general and more useful predictive models than the empirical models that, that we've tried to use for the same purposes.
1: Appreciate that explanation very much because there is a lot of work now. Obviously people are excited about the soil carbon pool and what it can do to if carbon capture is enhanced and we can create some additional carbon storage in our soils and rejuvenate those soils you have brands uh, government agencies individuals getting you know pretty excited about this solution of of soil carbon it, it has so many stacked function benefits and so for us, being able to incentivize carbon farming, we call it, you know, enhancing the carbon capture on fiber producing landscapes, we've had to be able to tell our story about what is the carbon capture look like? What is the numeric value you can give to that? And so the um, environmental process models, well, they COMET as an environmental process model, has been discussed at many agency meetings that I've been in um, multiple, both public and private community members and stakeholders who are trying to incentivize farmers and ranchers to do carbon farming, you know, getting those numbers out the door about what's possible can help draw support, whether that's public money, um, whether those are private dollars from brands and the reliability of the model has been, is very important to developing incentives. And so I just, you know, if you could describe some of the government agencies, you, you mentioned the federal government and um, this recent fourth climate assessment, but just so people understand how the Comet tool is used, could you describe some of the agencies that are currently using it and then any of the brands that you could speak to?
2: So again just just kind of one one final comment on the on the approach to quantification and and that's really that we're we're using the you know the best models that we have while we're also at the same time we're you know we're actively working to continue to improve those models with more field research more you know more field experiments more observations Uh, so it's an ongoing process but i i think that the bottom line is: is it through a system like Comet Farm that uses existing sources of, of data, it uses uh, advanced models, you make it possible for quantification to be reliable and and cost effective, so that you. Uh, if you had to measure on every single field that you wanted to get an estimate of, the expense would would probably would defeat the purpose of, yeah, I guess to put it another way, you you, you would spend you know more money measuring your your carbon uh, increase than, than say that carbon increase might be worth if you were to sell it as a as an offset or something like that for. For a, for a mitigation program. But anyway, uh, but back to your, I think you're your more to the point of your, of your of your question about how's Comet Farm you know being used. So our original sponsor and we developed this the tool really to meet the needs of, of USDA and RCS, who have a number of sponsored conservation programs through the EQIP, the uh, conservation reserve program, and other kinds of conservation practices, they very much wanted to have a, an entity scale tool that would allow NRCS field personnel at the, at the county scale and all the way up to, to the national scale to, to have a tool that they could uh, use to, to look at the, the benefits or the outcomes of their conservation practices that they are are helping farmers to to implement it. But it certainly was designed to be also more general, again, as an entity scale tool, so that, as you mentioned, a number of organizations, companies that are producing agricultural products on the land and want to look at the, if you will, the carbon footprint or the environmental footprint of their products, much like the fiber shed work with With North Face, it's a tool that that lends itself to that because it really does a a a full greenhouse gas estimate within the farm gate that that looks at all the components of the management and and how that affects you know not only carbon but also other you know non-CO2 greenhouse gases uh, such as nitrous oxide and methane uh, are estimated by it. Uh, so we've worked with uh, Ben and Jerry's, for example, in and, and dairies uh, systems, and, and we have some, uh, you know, ongoing uh, discussions and collaborations with, with some other companies in that space, and, including uh, dairy, but also looking at conventional but also specialty crop type of uh, production systems. We've done a lot of work in California with both California Department of Food and Agriculture in terms of getting the system to be able to be used in, for example, the Healthy Soils Initiative in, in California, which uses the, uh, the Comet Planner tool uh, as as part of its program implementation. We've got a, I've actually got a USDA project ongoing now to uh, enhance some of the components of the model that for use using in organic systems and so we've you know we're working with some organic producers to uh, make the system really very useful for them we're, we've worked with with a number of NGOs with Environmental Defense Fund uh, for example with uh, we've worked on some conservation innovation grants some of the methods that are in the Comet Farm tool have been used to help develop Protocols for the Climate Action Reserve for some of their offset protocols. So there's there's really a uh, a variety of yeah different customers if you will, I think organizations that want to use this kind of a tool. And yeah, we're quite gratified by the response. It's you know it's it's, it's always a work in progress, and and we're trying to sort of continue to make improvements in, in the system and make it over time more and more usable and more and more relevant to you know to the folks that are interested in this area and as we kind of started talking about in the very beginning you know it's a big problem so we, we really society has to work as hard as possible on all fronts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to actively remove and sequester carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And, and, you know, we don't have any time to waste. And so we're help, you know, happy to be working with folks like Fibershed and, and others to really try to advance that agenda.
1: Thank you, Keith. We're grateful to be working with you in this, usership of this model in that it's open source. I just want to emphasize you, you've listed some agencies and businesses that maybe listeners are saying, wow, that's, that's impressive. Those are you know, large scale entities with a lot of funds to move this way and that way. And I just want to emphasize for everyone, the comment model is a publicly accessible tool that's free for people to use and Keith you've described to me this vision of being able to have feedback loops with communities where we help refine the model through a kind of a citizen approach where we maybe for us partnering with our local land grant university to help us do some monitoring maybe a partner biologist from point blue um, people in our community who can come to farms and ranches and help us understand the soil organic carbon content changes over time as we improve land management? What are the biological changes on the farm? we, We feel like you've provided us a platform to enhance how we function as citizen scientists. And it's inspired us to elevate our work, to be at some point, at the point where we can feed the model, relevant, important information that makes the model even a more refined tool and predictor of potential changes in ecosystem function. So I'm just excited and would invite listeners to think about checking out the Comet tool. Um, there's Comet Planner, which allows you to make pretty simple estimates and very easy user-friendly. Comet Farm is, um, takes a little more time to, to really um, input all the data, but both tools are open source and accessible. And I think that's the beauty of this Is that you've created something that we can all use to make faster um, analyses and increase the incentives for the work because I've seen studies done where we did soil sampling and like like the marine carbon project work. I think it was close to eight million dollars to sample and process all those soil samples and I think there was another project in Texas on adaptive managed grazing and all the soil sampling took like four and a half million dollars. And yeah, you know exactly how much carbon you've sequestered to the inch, but it's a very academic expensive process, a very needed process. I'm glad there's these research institutions that can do this and we can garner the funds to continue to do this work. But if we're going to scale this work and build incentives to help people on the land change land management for the better of the ecosystem, you know, your tool has been incredibly helpful. And so I'm speaking to this last question in our last, we'll t- take hopefully two more minutes. <laughs> um, what do you think? Cause I can see how, how the work is scaling in our community, but from your impression, what do you think this work of land management shift and soil carbon increase, what do you think the work needs for scaling from where you sit?
2: <laughs> no, that's a great question. I, I think first and you know first and foremost is it's the producers, it's the farmers and ranchers that are going to need to kind of remake the agricultural landscape. So I think you know if we're really going to achieve this kind of you know carbon sequestration and you know, drawdown of carbon dioxide, but also much healthier soils. Better water quality, all the kinds of environmental benefits that we want to see. I, I think our our land use systems are going to need to look fundamentally different in the future than than they do in most cases now. So it's it's there are big changes that are needed, but they're changes that that are possible and and they're they're already happening on in many places on, on progressive farmers who've, who've really figured out how to, to manage their soils and vegetation in, in a really outstanding way show that it's possible. But I think the, you know, what you refer to scale up is there's a lot of changes that have to happen on, on a lot of acres. And so I think the, the most important thing is that farmers and ranchers, you know, are incentivized to undertake these changes It's not because the changes themselves necessarily i think in in many cases they could be more profitable and better management systems in the long term so you should say well why would why do farmers need to be incentivized to do what's going to be better for them anyway and i think there's a there's a couple answers to that is is one you know farming is a risky business and when you change something there's risk and farmers are naturally and for good reason risk averse people because in some ways you can't sort of afford to make a mistake. And so you're changing something, there's risk involved. So I think you need incentives. You need, whether it's, it's education, training, monetary incentives, the farmers need to have incentives to change their management systems and for help in, in sort of managing the risk as they transition into A new system. So I think that's a, you know, that's probably the number one thing. So can farmers get rewarded for moving towards this better stewardship and and help particularly through a a kind of a transition time. And there's a number of things that can help to, to incentivize those kind of changes. And then the other area I think that's that's a, a big one is is you know kind of the one that we've been talking about now is that if there's going to be investment in you know in carbon offsets, if companies are going to you know pay producers or or reward producers for more sustainable practices, it's going to be really important that you know that we have accurate metrics of what the improvements have actually been, and and certainly it's a you know we've talked about it already. In, in in the past few minutes about how do we quantify these benefits how do we quantify the the, the, the increased carbon improved water quality etc and that that is a challenge because agricultural soils and, and ecosystems are are complex and and kind of spatially and temporally variable kinds of systems and so and that's really where again i think what farm comes in as, a way to to manage some of that complexity to to make good metrics be something that is to be cost effectively done but at the same time that's a you know as i indicated before it's it's something that it's a, it's an ongoing effort so i think there are the other areas is I think we, we need to continue the research and development that we're doing now to continue to improve these tools, make them more accurate, uh, reduce the uncertainty. And, and something that you alluded to before is that I, I think there is a an underutilized role for farmers and ranchers to kind of contribute to the broader scientific enterprise. And a a big part of that is really through an understanding of, of how they are managing the land. There's a tremendous knowledge there that exists at the individual farm. And as we're trying to, you know, estimate, for example, at the national scale, the greenhouse gas uh, emissions from agricultural systems and things like this. A big part of what drives that is, you know, what are actually the practices that are out there? And, you know, in the U S we have a pretty good idea from, you know, we've got various uh, agencies the you know, economic research service and others that that do surveys. and, And so we have lots of data on farming practices and things like this, but yet I think the farmers have, you know, they're capable of providing, you know, even more detailed information about what they do. And particularly if you, you know, just think for a minute, going to developing countries, they don't have the kind of infrastructure that that we have in the U.S. or in European countries, for example, to, to kind of know how agriculture is functioning on the landscape. And there, I think, there's some real opportunities for the farmers on the ground to kind of be part of this scientific inter, inter, enterprise by you know providing information about how they're managing the land and you know, kind of what works and what doesn't so going forward i would certainly like to see that farmers can get engaged as really partners in this process with other you know organizations such as fiber shed you know working with farmers to collect on farm data and and to you know bring those into a kind of a broader collection of information then then i think we'll be able to continue to improve the you know the estimation tools in our our knowledge base to make these uh, improvements in in the landscape easier and and uh, bring them along faster than they they might otherwise uh, take place
1: wonderful vision for scale and if those who are listening are interested in learning more about carbon farming, uh, you can go to www.fibershed.org, um, www.carboncycleinstitute.org. Um, there are other resources we'll, we will make uh, this information available. And the vision for scale that I would say is commensurate with what Keith just described is how can fibershed communities across at least at a national and hopefully international landscape develop these fiber producing landscapes in their home communities and utilize this tool to help build incentives. So as people who wear clothing, which is all of us, can begin to understand the impact through, you know, even really didactic numeric value about the, the carbon impact of what they're wearing and how hopefully we get to the point where each community can develop these climate beneficial fiber systems in a place-based way. And then we can envision taking data from our home communities and helping feed this model that will help us in all of our hometowns and regions make better analysis of what we could do uh, to feed into this bigger set of solutions. All together, we become a big solution. So I'm all for the grassroots communities using open source technology like Comet to empower themselves to know what they can do. And I think you've offered an incredible tool to grassroots organizers, Keith, and um, we plan on nourishing the model (laughs) in future. So thank you for your time today, and I really look forward to future conversations and collaborations.
2: Thanks, Rebecca. It's great to work with you guys, and, and we look forward to continuing that in the future. Love is back in the trailer. Turn one way and it goes the other.
0: Love. Thanks for listening to the third episode of Soil to Soil, a podcast by Fibershed, which is a nonprofit organization based in Northern California. We invite you to learn more about our work and the concepts described here by visiting www.fibershed.org. There you can find the show notes from this episode, as well as sign-ups for our newsletter, and ways to connect with us on social media by searching on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter for Fibershed. We actually share on social media a lot of photos and anecdotes of carbon farming practices from our Northern California community, as well as some of the explorations of our peer communities in different geographies around the U.S. So if you're interested in hearing how the theories and the science that Dr. Poston and Rebecca talked about are really landing on the ground, we'd love for you to follow along and ask us questions. To learn more about the Comet Farm and Comet Planner tools, head to comet-farm or comet-planner.com. That's just spelled C-O-M-E-T. These tools have been developed by Colorado State University and we're so incredibly grateful for their work has enabled us to model the carbon sequestration of many of the working landscapes that provide our food, fiber, and so much more. Check out the show notes from this episode for the links to these Comet tools, as well as the research papers that Rebecca and Dr. Postian discussed, and to find more information about carbon farming. This show is produced by Fibershed, with support from Whetstone Media, and music by Aaron Harris, a member of the Northern California Fiber Shed. Lowby.